This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So teaching and Dharma teaching, which is the traditional word for offering practices and understandings that bring inner well-being and inner liberation. Um, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means truth, truth-telling, but also it means the path of awakening. Um, it are, these teachings are primarily reminders. It's not like it's something new, but rather it speaks to what you already know. So let yourself listen in a way that's at ease. Don't have to take any notes, no quiz at the end. And listen to feel what might resonate for you as true. And if it's not, then just let it go. Over the course of this year on the Monday nights that I've been here, um, the theme has been true nature or Buddha nature, the nature of the awakened heart and awakened mind. Um, And it's a series of teachings that in Buddhist psychology are called the Ten Paramitas. Sometimes they're described as the perfections. Um, I like to think of them as the innate qualities of heart and mind that we can remember and awaken and embody in ourselves. And the Buddhist texts often begin with a lovely phrase that goes, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember your fundamental dignity, your fundamental goodness. I just came from a kind of strange conference. It was called the Evolution of Psychotherapy, and it was six or 7,000 therapists, the largest therapy conference in the country, at Disneyland. (laughs) Maybe they needed it, I don't know. And part of what my presentation had to do with is uh, holding up the, I did a whole bunch of presentations, holding up the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual that has 
all the numbers that your insurance company wants you to um, pin on somebody to make sure that they can get treated properly. So it's all really about money and diagnosis and whether you have an affective disorder or a depressive disorder or a, you know, a bipolar disorder or a, you know, sleep disorder or all the, all the kinds of disorders. It's all about your diseases, right? And the thing is that that's how they see you. You're seen as your problem. Um, and I said, well, Buddhist psychology starts from the other end. It starts with the original dignity and beauty of every being and the diseases they, you know, or the problems. Everybody has problems. Anybody not have problems? You have your money back, right? Um, but Buddhist psychology starts by seeing the secret beauty behind the eyes of every being. And whether you're doing therapy, and I did a, I did a demonstration, which was kind of fun to do, 2,000 people there, and somebody sits and tells me their problems, and Rue's watching, okay, Jack, what is he going to do, you know? And I just started by holding her hand. Did that for quite a long time, and everybody went, oh, you know? We don't even need to talk about it. We just need to make a connection, feel like somebody's there with us. So I feel really grateful for these teachings and practices because they remind me and then the community and people that I care about and am part of, of who we really are. And so over the course of these months, the different qualities of the awakened heart were described as joy and um, integrity and generosity and patience and dedication and truthfulness and all these different lovely qualities. And the last two are equanimity and love. And I believe that I talked mostly about equanimity last time, so fitting for our, for our last class of the year, we'll talk about love. I remember this poem that begins, In the evening you will be examined on love. And it's a beautiful line, in the evening of your life, or in the evening when you really reflect on what matters. Or I think of my teacher, Sri Nisargadat in India, who said at one point, wisdom says I am nothing, and love says I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. This very deep vision of who we are. Um, and so, really, we're talking about timeless qualities that are there in every human being. Um, and so when you sit, and you come and sit in meditation, we just did 20 minutes of sitting. For those of you who are new, congratulations, you made it through 20 minutes. Um, yes, there are practices to cultivate certain lovely qualities like compassion or forgiveness or presence. But mostly, the game is to sit and let the mind quiet and tend the heart and begin to listen to life itself, to the mystery of life. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And so you're not meditating in order to fix yourself, which I know you have tried, and you had a little success, but that's really not the point. The point is instead to become present for the mystery of your life in a loving way, with loving awareness. And those slides that I showed, those images, are connected in a certain way with the fact that this is the solstice. You know, 
Um, and every, every day, um, half a million pounds of cosmic dust land on the earth. Okay, what that means is that as our planet is circling our home star, it is also moving through the space of the galaxies around the arm of the Milky Way. And it's not just empty space, but there's all this cosmic dust. It's actually what you're made of, by the way, but we'll talk about that, your body anyway. Um, and all the time, cosmic dust is raining down on our planet. And all the time, at the same time, um, we human beings are going through this metamorphosis called, metamorphosis called birth and death. And so I've talked about the woman in Colorado, I can't remember her name right now, the artist who made the salt monument, this beautiful wooden um, chapel in which there's a huge lucite crystal um, that turns every 24 hours filled with 7.2 billion grains of salt. And every um, morning, every, uh, let's see, morning and evening, how does she do this? Yes. Every morning, as the priestess, um, she takes uh, a little vial of 250,000 grains of salt and pours it in the top and makes a prayer for all those who were born that day. And then every evening, she draws off a little vial of 200,000 grains of salt for all those who left and who died that day. And she does this every day as a, as a priestess for the hundreds of thousands who come in and go each day. I mean, this is us. This is human incarnation, and it's so mysterious. And the earth is turning, and tomorrow night maybe, or the next one will be the longest night of the year, and then everybody around the world in their own way, or almost everybody, finds some celebration for the light to return. Here we are in the northern hemisphere for right now. And whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or, you know, whatever holy holiday it is, there's something about the return of the light. As my poet friend Dina Metzger writes, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and begin again. And there's something about life that wants to renew itself no matter what. It just does. And it's completely trustworthy. And you are that life. You're constantly renewing yourself. In the time it takes to say one sentence, 50,000 new cells are born in your body. Hello, I'm here, you know, working for you. All right. It's so mysterious. So then what are you going to do with this? How are you going to navigate this, this mysterious human incarnation? After his enlightenment, as the story or the myth is told, the Buddha sat there for a while under the tree of enlightenment. And then it said he gazed around the world um, with the... Uh, eyes of compassion that could see at great distances. And when he looked across the, the wide world, he saw beings everywhere who wanted to be happy, but many of them doing the very things that would create suffering. 
and tears began to stream down his cheeks. When they hit the ground, it said they turned into the goddess Tara, who became the bodhisattva of compassion, to to offer compassion to the whole world. But he saw that beings want to be happy. And then he said, I have found a way for us to be happy as human beings. Let me walk as he did um, for the benefit of beings and remind them of what's possible. So for 45 years, he walked the dusty roads of India, encountering one person after another and saying, you too, hey, here's a way to awaken. Here's a way to be happy. So meditation is not a grim duty. There's a certain way that for certain people, spiritual practice gets mixed up with, you know, vitamins and cod liver oil or something. You have to do it, right? Um, And it's not that. It's a reminder that we can quiet ourselves and talk to the heart and listen. What really matters? I have this letter I've read before that came from a middle school student when their class uh, came to Spirit Rock. And it's written in that sort of tentative middle school script with bad spelling and all. Dear Jack... Our middle school came to your center to learn meditation. At the time, I didn't think it mattered much, and I just wanted to sit with my friends. Now my mom and I are having some really bad fights and stuff, and I don't know what to do. I go out on the roof and sit, and I don't know why, but I remember back to what you taught us and the little bit of meditation I learned, and it helps me not be so mad and upset. I can even talk to her sometimes afterward. We should learn this stuff in school, you know. (laughs) And it wasn't very long. It was like an hour or an hour and a half. You can do this. It's possible for us. And the teachings of this perfection of the heart, of loving kindness, which are expressed in the in a beautiful way in Buddhist teachings, in the Metta Sutta, the Sutra of Loving Kindness, um, where the Buddha speaks of loving all beings or developing a heart of kindness like a mother holding her most beloved child. Um, They were taught, actually, uh, when some monks and nuns had gone into the forest to practice and there were all kinds of the sounds of wild animals and ghosts and spirits or whatever one wants to listen to in the forest. Um, And they came back and they said, it's scary out there. And the Buddha said, I will teach you a practice that calms your fears. Listen, my friends, we need this right now. (laughs) There's a lot of anxiety running around in our culture. And there's a lot of people trying to make you afraid. Um, you know, and the wild animals, as one of my teachers who lived in the jungle said, I'm not worried about the animals out there, the tigers and the, you know, bears and things like that. You want to see a dangerous animal, look in the mirror, right? But anyway, so there's a lot of anxiety and the teachings of loving kindness are an antidote to this. And the phrase is to develop a loving kindness for oneself for those we care about, for those beyond, the neutral ones, for all those who are difficult, for beings everywhere. And the phrase, I can hear Sylvia Borstein, my colleague here, because she loves this phrase, omitting none, leaving none of them out. 
This is uh, the biblical uh, Corinthians expression. If I speak with tongues of men and angels but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a clanging gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. In the end, what really matters is the question. Omitting none. Omitting none. And we live in a time where there's so much divisiveness and fear and racism and also, you know, the destruction of the environment. And there's the quality of loving kindness, omitting none means to bring them all in, to listen to every part. Zen poet EQ says, every day I hear the priests chant the sacred words. They should learn to read the love letters sent by the wind and the rain, the blossoms and the moon. That the world itself, that mysterious world you are seeing, all those amazing pictures, is talking to you, saying, here you are on this extraordinary planet. Please listen. Please pay attention. And then the instruction is to love, omitting none. Now, I just came back also from teaching with Ram Das. Um, some of you, many of you probably know him, know who he is anyway, teaching retreat with my beloved Trudy. And we were there. It was a tough assignment, but we were on the beach in Maui with a few hundred people. And Ram Das is now 86. And he ha- he's in his wheelchair after his stroke, and he has aphasia, so he speaks somewhat slowly with some difficulty. But his mind is clear, and he's become Mr. Love, basically. He just loves everything, um, omitting none. And it's really clear, um, because when you go to his home, he has this great big altar in his living room, and there's Buddha and Kuan Yin and Mother Mary and pictures of Gandhi and, and um, you know, Anandamaya Ma and pictures of um, all these great saints and um, Guadalupe and Jesus and his guru and various other great teachers and so forth. And for a long time in the middle was a picture of Dick Cheney. <laughs> and he said, you know, this is my practice. Um, as Father Greg Boyle, who works at Homeboys Industries, said, sometimes you have to work with Jesus in his least recognizable form, basically. <laughs> but Ramda says, you know, I love it all. I love this room. I love the people in front of me. I love the sky. I love, I love everything. And he goes, he keeps saying it as a thing. You think, oh, yeah, all right. Somebody says, I love you. And you go, yeah, that's a good moment. But how long will it last, right? They have other feelings. And he just goes on and on. And pretty soon you start to get in this field of love and actually believe him. And he says, I love it all. I love the, you know, the carpet here. And I love the lights. And I love the darkness out there and the stars. And I love the colors of your hair and the bald ones too. I love you all, you know. And in fact, my friend, I've told this story, Mickey Lemley, who's a wonderful filmmaker, heard Ramdas say this and said, Ramdas, you love everything. How about this dirty carpet? And he said, oh, I love it. I love it all, you know. So a couple of weeks later, in a beautiful gilded frame, comes a piece of 
really dirty carpet from the place where Ramdas was teaching. He says, okay, Ramdas, put this on your altar next to your guru. You know, and he did. You know, there's his guru, and there's Gandhi, and there's Buddha, and, you know, and there's the carpet, right? Here you were, born in this human incarnation, right? No one knows quite how we got here, but we have it. And what are you going to do with it? Um, what was born into you is love. And lots of things born into you, but one of the central qualities born into you as a human being. And all you have to do is kind of look at the gaze of a newborn and, and their mother, as, you know, assuming a healthy birth and not a lot of trouble in that regard. Um, and it's just natural to us as human beings. But we forget it. So this is a passage from my one of my favorite figures in Los Angeles, Father Greg Boyle. He has a new book called Barking to the Choir, which I recommend. And his last one, called Tattoos on the Heart, is one of my favorite books of the last decade or two. Um, and he talks about, he was the founder of Homeboy Industries. And he talks about working with gang kids and all kinds of other stuff that he does in the barrios there. Very, very moving. But anyway, here he's working with a group of kids, you know, who've been in these gangs. And he said, all right, I got to talk to them one at a time. And this day, at the lineup, the next kid, the next homie approach, it's all swagger, you know. He's walking in, his head bobs side to side, make sure everybody's seeing how cool he is. He sits down, we shake hands, but he seems unable to shake the scowl etched across his face. What's your name, I ask you? Sniper, he sneers, you know. Got a gun in his pocket. Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Snipers, come on, dog, what's your name? Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oh, yeah, dude. But, son, I'm looking for birth certificate here. Come on, and we sit quietly. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening, but there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. Okay, Padre. Napoleon. He managed to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when you're Jefita calls you. She doesn't use the whole nine yards here. Come on, mijito. Do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he has not visited in some time. His voice, body language, whole being are taking a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet I lean, lean in, sometimes when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzales to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. <laughs> so who are we? You know, we have all these roles and all these things that we do, but 
what was born into us, what is our nature. And when we remember that love, that, that underneath there's a vulnerability and a, a beauty and a kind of courage, both to be touched by the world and to respond to the world, then we find both tears, not just the tears of what happened to you in your own personal trauma, but something that are called the tears of the way. The heart's just touched and it's poignant, life itself. If you search for the awakened heart, you find, says Chogyam Trumpa, that you're looking into space. There's nothing tangible, but if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, what you find is tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the world, you feel a kind of sadness that doesn't come from being mistreated or insulted or impoverished. This experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is this tender heart, the tender heart of a warrior, that has the power to touch and heal the world. So you get quiet and you really listen and you remember this is in you. But also what is in you is a child of the spirit, is the spirit of joy. This is also born in you. And especially for this solstice time of renewal, this is why you can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in the spring and 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens holding them to their skinny chests and painters going blind paint more and composers going deaf writing great symphonies. As we give ourselves to life, it floods through us it will renew itself. As Pablo Neruda says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There's something that wants to renew itself each time the globe, you know, goes around the sun. All right, let's start again.